Hi everyone, and welcome to our latest Risk and Regulation Rundown podcast. I'm Andrew Strange, your regular host, and I'm delighted that we're recording this episode in person. In today's episode, we're discussing money laundering and crypto assets, the links between which I assure you will become apparent. Well, I hope so anyway. I'm joined by Hannah Swain, who leads our Financial Services Regulatory Insights team and is an expert in financial crime, uh, and Hayden Jones, a director who is a crypto market specialist leading our crypto and blockchain practice. So Hannah, one of the reasons why money laundering is so topical at the moment is that the government published a call for evidence to review both the UK's AML and terrorist financing regulatory and supervisory regimes, and also a specific consultation proposing changes to the money laundering regulations all over this summer. Do you want to just start by talking us through some of the key messages from there? Yes, certainly, Andrew. Thanks very much for having me. Before I answer your question, I think it would be worth just recapping a little bit and just giving it a little bit of context. Um, I actually went and looked when we last covered uh, money laundering in, in, at this podcast, and it was back in February 2020, which in the grand scheme of things is not very long ago. Um, but when we talked about it then, the 5MLD had recently come into force, um, and that had really been brought into, um, into being as a result of a spate of terrorist attacks in Europe and also off the back of the Panama Papers. Uh, amazingly, that was the first time that crypto asset businesses were brought into the regime. Um, and it's also worth remembering that the uh, call for evidence that we're going to be talking about today was uh, w one of the commitments that was set out in the economic crime plan. So what a different world we are in now. So much has changed since then. Um, there's been We've had the pandemic, um, a huge explosion of innovation, um, in, in particular in the area of crypto. And I think um, both from a payments and an investments perspective, and Hayden, you, you'll know better than me, but I think at least 4% of the population now hold some sort of crypto it's investment. It's about 4.4%. 4 .4%, yeah. 4 .4%, yeah. okay. So a very different world yeah, from back in, in, in February 2020. So why am I telling you this? Um, well, really, I think it just illustrates the challenges that are at the heart of the AML regime. How do you design a regime that's going to be future-proof, that's going to uh, not just be playing catch-up with criminals who keep changing their modus operandi as the world changes, and that of avoids that risk of just being reactive, really, that undermines the whole uh, principle of, of a risk-based regime. So that's the background. As you say, we've had two documents over the summer, uh, the consultation and the call for evidence closed actually on the 14th of October. Um, the call for evidence uh, really looked at the regime and asked for views on whether it was meeting its objectives. It was very broad ranging, and uh, I suppose it sort of sits within three headings. One is around the effectiveness of the regime and, and, it, and its scope. Uh, another aspect was around some of the key elements of the regime and just really checking in as to whether they are operating as they were intended to do. And finally, it's around the structure of the supervisory regime associated with it. It covers in the specifics around a range of topics. I'll just pick out three of them just to give people a flavour of what, what was covered. First of all, it, the effectiveness of enforcement. So um, it is, is, the, is the approach to enforcement, the timeframes for enforcement, etc. Are they working as they should be? There's a lot around the role of technology, what role that should play and how it can really, the regulators can enable firms to use that. And, and also it talks about the role of supervisors generally and more specifically how they should be interacting with suspicious activity reports, which is obviously a key pillar of the regime. 
on the consultation, which is much more specific, in, uh, as you said, um, it, it proposes some amendments to the um, money laundering regulations. Uh, a couple of examples within that. First of all, on scope, uh, it looks at the perimeter in relation to account information service providers and payment information initiation service providers and asks whether um, uh, they should be excluded from the regime. And the other one that's per worth referencing is just around... Um, obligations for reporting any discrepancies that firms may find in, in beneficial ownership. So under 5MLD, an obligation was introduced for firms to report um, discrepancies uh, that they um, uncover at the point of KYC when taking a client on. Uh, what's being proposed here is that that obligation is extended throughout the life cycle of, of a um, of that relationship. So lots in there. Those are just some examples. I hope that gives a flavour of what, what it covers. Yeah, there's lots to unpack there. Um, I suppose thinking about some of our audience for this who are typically firms, I mean, this feels on occasion a little bit intangible for firms. So is this about actions that regulators need to take or is it things firms should be doing or is it things that both sides of the coin should be doing as it were? Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's the latter. I think it's both sides of the coin. And I would throw in another one, which is around what the government should be doing. And yeah. and um, in in terms of PwC's response to the consultation and the call for evidence, we talk about this a lot. So just reflecting on, briefly on all three of those. So from a government perspective, our view is this, that there should be less focus on sort of tinkering around the perimeter, more focus on outcomes, um, and and also to really to support all of that is 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 to ensure that uh, there is proper investment in organizations like companies house and the national um, crime agency who are those that are best placed to really have that broad oversight of the entire regime um so 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 that's sort of the government messages i i guess from a regulator's perspective uh, again we we are calling for regulators to really make that extra effort, again, dependent on resourcing, but to understand the firms that they supervise and adapt their supervisory approach to, that, that, that will be appropriate for that kind of business model. So just giving you an example, uh, we've seen that uh, the, the traditional file testing approach that have, it might be fit for purpose for older style business models simply isn't really appropriate, doesn't get you the outcome that you're looking for when you're looking at some of the more innovative business models where a design testing focus might be more appropriate. From a firm's perspective, it's the other side of the coin, really. Uh, you know, that it's a they are a very key part of this ecosystem and their responsibility is to educate supervisors about their business model and, and, and about their business generally and to really try and promote that dialogue with, with those that, that are supervising them. Um, again, taking the beneficial ownership point that I've just uh, talked about uh, earlier, uh, in our response, we, it might be controversial, but we actually support the idea of, of, of extending the obligation across that life cycle of, around reporting discrepancies, hand in hand with not changing the obligations around due diligence and, and KYC. But our view is, is that if a firm uncovers a discrepancy, it's quite right that they should be expected to report that through to Companies House. Again, caveated hugely that it, it requires Companies House to have been reformed and for um, proper investment to be there so that they can actually deal with that information in an effective way.
Okay, that's really interesting. Uh, one of the, the points that's come up in a number of conversations I've had with people has been around something called the so-called travel rule for, for crypto firms. Do you want to just explain what that is and how it impacts firms briefly? Yes, I, I will leave the, 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 the nuances and details to, to Hayden because he's much better positioned to, to answer that. But if I just sort of try and give, a, give a, an idea of what it is. So the, um, the, the consultation provo- proposes an extension to the travel rule to cover crypto asset exchange providers and custodian wallet providers. The travel rule is really a requirement that, um, that there is within a transaction, there's detailed personal information of both the originator and the beneficiary. It's an, it's a, it's been applied in, to ordinary wire transfers um, for years under the funds transfer regulation, and FATF back in 2019 uh, recommended the extension of that to cover crypto firms as well. So the, these, this consultation is looking at how that might come about. What's being proposed for crypto asset firms within the consultation is that um, the, they should be providing information on that originator and beneficiary of the crypto asset transfer beyond a threshold of £1,000. What does this mean? Well, technically it's possible, um, but um, a, a lot of what we talk about in our responses is, is looking at whether, the, 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 whilst it might be technically possible, it would be very expensive, and we are questioning whether that's the best approach, whether there are other ways that could be more effective. Okay, uh, and so that nuance, and Hayden, let me bring you in there. What, what, what are you seeing in terms of that? So I think, um, I mean, the first thing to say is that uh, there are something like 13,000 cryptocurrencies out there, okay? Um, and, um, you know, it's what Hannah has outlined, the requirement of travel is that the originator and the beneficiary uh, are, can be attached to the transaction, okay? Now, in terms of the solution, there are a number of ways through that because what we can do the, thing to th- you know, the way to think about cryptocurrencies is that it's a technology, okay? And as a technology, that means it can be configured, it can be programmed, it can be coded, so we can actually do very clever things with it. Uh, so in the case of Bitcoin, um, there is a, 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 a part of the Bitcoin transaction where we can actually include identity information, okay? So we can actually create Bitcoin transactions that are fully identifiable uh, from the point at which they originate all the way through to the point at which the, you know, they've, they've been received by the beneficiary. Um, whether people want to do that is entirely up to them. But the point is that that functionality exists within Bitcoin transactions. Uh, and then if you take that then through into all of the other cryptocurrencies uh, that are homemade in some ways, um, again, they're all configurable. Okay. Now, the other way to solve travel rule, the travel rule requirement is to what you do is you impose a requirement at the perimeter. So <clears throat> the ecosystem, if you like, uh, so the exchanges, the custodians, the wallet providers and the issuers. But that then implies you create almost like a mirror technology, a mirror database that is tracking the transactions themselves, because the transactions themselves won't have any inherent identity information. But what you do is you build a database alongside. But actually, we're kind of missing a trick here because what we can do is we can say, well, all of this information that you know, can be captured at the perimeter, why don't you use the protocol to actually embed the information in there? Uh, and that sort of aligns very swiftly with the you know, golden principle in, in the way you use technologies to reuse what you've got. So you get a two-for-one benefit because you can put the identity information in your Bitcoin transactions. Uh, and I, I, you know, for me, the, the, the attraction of this technology is, is the efficiency because you're bringing together store of value, ledger and payment. 
The problem, the problem with the technology has been the, the, the lack of state backing. So if Bitcoin fails, nobody's going to step in and, and you know, no, no government authority will step in and save it. So, so there's this kind of line, and this is very much in the context of the audience, the firm's audience that we've got, um, the firms that are listening. Uh, what we see now are central bank digital currencies coming through and regulated stable coins coming through. And they will have the, the, exactly the same requirements. So we can draw a line between you know, the, the, the imposition of the travel rule in a crypto context through to actually where we see the legitimization of this technology in the context of central bank digital currencies and stable coins. What we see is the opportunity for this kind of efficiency um, benefit because we can layer in all of the sort of the KYC, AML, uh, identification, you know, financial crime paraphernalia that sits around broader fiat entities. And then we can start to think about how we embed that within things like central bank digital currencies and stable coins. Uh, that's really interesting. And you know, yeah. the nuance of technology versus what, it, what some people might perceive to be a currency, for example, actually really plays that point around how supervisory and regulatory agendas have to change to tackle that. And when, when you talked about the kind of mirroring piece, I mean, that to me also screams duplication and cost. But is that not inherently much more expensive to run well, the system? Well, it is. And, and unfortunately, um, you know, the, 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 there, are, there are big cryptocurrency exchanges out there. There are small cryptocurrency exchanges out there. Um, I mean, the, the implication is that the sort of the mirror type approach on the perimeter, the implication is that they've all got to come together and figure out some kind of standards whereby they're sending information between each other. Um, a lot of the solutions are going to be sort of homegrown uh, and, uh, you know, they, 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 they will operate well, I'm sure, but there's also a risk that they won't operate particularly well. Um, so I think there's, there's an important opportunity and need to sort of describe, we can have a protocol approach so that cryptocurrencies can, can define this for themselves, or we can have this mirror approach uh, where you can, you can come up with your own internal databases. Uh, but there is a big efficiency opportunity here that's pointing to what we can do with this technology in terms of um, just, 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 just you know, solving two problems with one shot and sort of say, well, actually, we can take uh, the transmission of store of value, and we can add lots of information in there around identity as it relates to originator and beneficiary. Okay, uh, and you talked about, and Hannah actually talked about the perimeter here as well. And clearly, again, if, if you look at where the FCA is going in the UK, it's it's very keen to have a robust gateway. So, in terms of authorization, so what kind of market activity are you seeing in terms of authorization of crypto asset firms? Table? So. Um, if we, if we look at where we are currently, um, the, the sort of the existing requirement to operate as a cryptocurrency provider in the United Kingdom, so that's exchange, custodian, wallet provider, or an issuer, and or um, a, a Bitcoin uh, ATM operator, uh, it's, you've got to adhere to 5MLD. Um, so we had, it was about, about 150, 180 firms applied originally uh, at the beginning of, of 2020. Uh, we're down to 13 that wow. are now okay. fully authorised. Um, looking at the numbers, um, you know, if you look at the most sense, about one in nine actually get through or thereabouts. There's about 50 who are on the temporary register or thereabouts. Um, and the FCA are working their way through them. And, uh, you know, they either uh, reach or surpass the standard and they're invited onto the, onto the full list. 
Um, otherwise, you know, the FCA are sort of working hard with them and they're sort of they're asking, they're inviting them to withdraw their application and or we've seen uh, examples of Section 166 notices been served as well, you see. Um, but this is all good. This is all good. I mean, if, the, if, if this technology is going to thrive and it's going to deliver some really interesting value, so we're talking about store of value payment, you know, ledger with conditionality attached, we need a robust framework to bring these organisations through uh, so uh, this is all, all very positive. It's all very positive. Okay, that's really interesting. Thank you. Uh, and certainly the last time we, we talked about the regulators and their approach to crypto, uh, I think it was in January this year, uh, Treasury had issued a call for evidence on that, uh, uh, on, on crypto assets and stable coins. What's happened since then uh, and what are we expecting to see over the coming few months? So, um, I mean, the, the stablecoin consultation is very interesting. It was interesting that, that, that Treasury went after that. Um, my sense is that, the, I mean, the crypto, the, the, the consultation does reference crypto assets as well, but they seem to have majored on stable coins. Yeah. They seem to have pulled that out. Um, and uh, it was interesting, you look at the Chancellor's speech in April of this year, uh, the launch of uh, FinTech Week, um, you know, a couple of big announcements in there. One was about UK Bank of England central bank digital currency. And we see the bank now, they've set up two task forces to, to move that program, program of work forward. Uh, and similarly, uh, you know, the Chancellor made reference to the stablecoin, the opportunity for stablecoins. We're seeing now, uh, if I look to some of the conversations I had just sort of two, three weeks ago, in the space of a week, I had four conversations with four organisations about the use of stablecoins to virtualise deposits held in nostros externally. Okay, because what we can do, if you think about capital that's locked up in a nostro, uh, you think about the, the payment window that you've got because you can access your nostro from 10 o'clock in the morning through to 2 o'clock in the afternoon. But you think about the utility of that money, you can only access it for four hours in any 24-hour period. So from a treasury management perspective, we can do some very clever things in terms of virtualizing that deposit so we've got access to it 24-7, 365 days of the year. So I think you know, in talking to... Um, you know, some of the different stakeholders in this space, the opportunity to do some very clever, innovative things with things like stablecoins in a regulated context uh, is there. And it's easier to have private um, firms you know, embrace that and move that forward because, uh, you know, huge respect for the Bank of England, but that's a three to five year program because we've got another you know, two years worth of consultation research. We might see a sandbox at the end of that. Uh, but the stablecoins are already out there now. What they need is a regulatory backdrop to actually you know, breathe safety and security in, in, into them as a, as a solution. Okay. Uh, and, I mean, you talked earlier about applications being withdrawn or the regulator asking people to withdraw their applications. And clearly, the UK doesn't operate in a vacuum. So uh, how does the UK compare to other jurisdictions? Because is there a risk that if you, if you can't get authorization in the UK, for example, you go somewhere else and it becomes a race to the bottom? So, so how does the UK compare to Europe or even further afield? Yeah, and we, we, we see examples of, you know, what I describe as sort of regulatory arbitrage. Um, I would say, I mean, for me, the leading jurisdictions are Switzerland and Singapore. And um, speaking to the regulators there, they're very comfortable. They understand the risks. Um, if we look at some of the other regulators, they're behind the curve in terms of, uh, you know, and it, it, it's getting good regulators is a challenge. Getting good regulators that understand crypto is a double challenge. So, so I think for me, the Swiss and the, um, 
uh, the Singaporeans are really very much leading this. I think UK, we're in a we're in a good place. I mean, you know, the, the, the FCA, they understand the issues. They've got a team of people there that are working their way through, you know, that, that, that hundred or so sort of, you know, there's applications that have all come through. Um, so that's good exposure for them. And I'd, I'd argue in many ways, we, we're almost um, we've got a very nice portfolio of, of initiatives. So you've got the stable coins, you've got the CBDCs, you've got 5MLD. Financial promotions is something that we need to nail because you can still go on the tube and you see adverts that say, you know, the yep. time to buy Bitcoin is when you see it advertised on the tube, which isn't particularly helpful. And it goes to the 4.4% the, the number. Um, but yeah, I'm sure we will close this off and that... Um, you know, uh, two, three years time, we'll start to see some of this technology flow through in a sort of a properly regulated fashion that's, you know, delivering uh, really interesting operational efficiencies. Okay, thank you. Uh, I'm wondering whether actually money laundering and crypto assets was too much to do in one session because we, we've come towards the end of the, our time, unfortunately. I mean, if I could leave you with an opportunity to, to, to for one kind of key question or key point that you'd want to make in terms of where we are with the regulatory process and firms and things like that, what, what would be the, the one point you'd want to make? Hannah, let me come to you first. It's quite difficult when it covers such <laughs> a large amount of um, ground. I suppose I, 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 would, I would say technology is, is the one point I would make it. So uh, it's around focusing less on tinkering with, with the regime um, and, be, and trying to be reactive in that way. It's more around thinking about how technology can be harnessed to really support that regime. So, for example, do we want to introduce some sort of certification for technology third-party providers in, in, in the AML space? Um, but there's all sorts of technologies out there that can support. And um, I think if we do that effectively, that will achieve the agility that we need, but without endlessly adding to the burden for firms. Brilliant. Hayden? So I would say stop, stop thinking about crypto and start thinking about technology, as, as, as Hannah says. So uh, for me, I like to think of where we are as being like um, sort of 25 years ago, uh, and we've just first, we've all got our first mobile phones, okay? And they were large and they were clunky and they, you know, the, and actually the battery life would last for about seven days, which is always pretty good, which is a lot better than some of the phones we've got currently. But, uh, but notwithstanding, the phones were big and clunky and they were, they didn't have particularly interesting features and you, you only have 1G or whatever. But, but what we've got is a technology that allows us to bring four things together, which is store of value, payment, ledger, and conditions, okay? Current organizations, those four things are, are wired very separately, okay? So you have four sets of wires, if you like. And what this technology allows us to do is to bring those four sets of wires together and put them in a single plug, okay? So we can actually move store of value on a ledger that we can observe, and we can attach conditions to it, and we can do that very easily. So I see the huge efficiency advantage there. So we need to stop thinking about crypto and start thinking about you know, digital currency technology that goes from central banks all the way through to regulated forms of Bitcoin. Uh, and um, you know, CBDCs will flow through. I think one of our latest statistics referenced the fact that only 5% of organizations, 5% of financial services organizations have got a strategy for central bank digital currencies. I'm pleased to say that as PwC, we, we, we're now into our third piece of major work with an FS entity that is looking at a strategy for central bank digital currencies. So 
stop thinking about crypto, start thinking about technology in this context. Excellent, thank you. So less tinkering and rewiring with one plug, that's my, my takeaway. Although I can do both. I'm very <laughs> happy with, as an engineer, very happy with both. I couldn't wire a plug, so I'll do neither. Um, okay, well, thank you both very much for today. That was, that was really interesting. Uh, and I hope that the links between money laundering and crypto assets are now slightly clearer for, for our listeners. It's clearly, it's a really inter interesting stage in the policy development. So we've got you know regulators and firms trying to navigate moving parts in the UK and further afield. Uh, it is very fluid, but I think it's a real chance for UK PLC as well, actually, to capitalise on this if we do it right. To our listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. Please do subscribe to future episodes and don't forget to rate and view this series as it helps other people to find us. And look out for our next episode next month.